Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. People who believe in this woke ideology, I think often they do act for seemingly noble motives. I don't think it's a matter of going too far in the right direction. I think it's actually going in the wrong direction. Now, education has to encourage students to define themselves as racial beings. You shouldn't teach students that they have things in common, that they should stand in solidarity with each other. No, that they should define themselves as strongly as possible by the particular group to which they belong. Separating kids by race does not get us closer to a better world. It's not going too far in creating a better world. It's creating a worse world. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Yasha Monk. Yasha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So Yasha, let's talk about your new book, The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. This is a book about identity politics, although you don't really call it that. You call it the identity synthesis. And I want to come back to that and ask you what you mean by that term. But I think that a lot of people will appreciate this book because it really is a history of ideas. You really dig down into the ideas, the historical ideas, the cultural ideas, the political thinking, uh, the academic thinking that gave rise to what we now refer to as identitarianism, identity politics, the identity synthesis, or wokeness, if we're feeling brave enough to jump into that kind of <laughs> more populist side of the discussion. So it's got loads of ideas in it, and I want to ask you about some of them. You opened the book very dramatically with the story of a school, an elementary school, I believe, in Atlanta in America, which in 2020 was segregating the kids by race. And you give the example of a, a, a black kid who was told, well, you can't be in that class. It's not the black class. And I think I'd read about that story in one of the newspapers. But when the way you present it, it really does grab the reader, pull them into your why you think this is such an in, important issue to talk about, the, the replacement of universalism with identitarianism. It really drags the reader headfirst in. So I want to kick off by asking you, just to tell us a little bit about that story, why you thought it was important to open with it. What do you think that tells us about where we're at right now? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, you know, in, in researching this book, I spoke to this woman, Kyla Posey, an uh, African-American educator in the suburbs of Atlanta, um, who had asked the school whether she can request a particular classroom for her daughter. And the school said, sure, of course, go ahead. But then when she made that request, the school and the principal kept stalling. And then she said, well, can't you go to that class. And she said, no, he's told me I can choose a classroom for my daughter. Why have things suddenly turned weird? And the principal told her, that's not the black class. Now, that sounds like a sort of old-fashioned story of racial discrimination, segregation in the American South, until you learn that the principal was herself a black woman who um, has bought into a much broader and deeper progressive ideology that has reshaped the key norms of how schools do business in America and that uh, starting to have influence in other places as well. And that idea is that as one really influential organization in America called characteristically Embrace Race puts it, a good progressive education has to encourage students 
to define themselves as racial beings, that to give them the tools to fight back against oppression, you shouldn't teach students that they have things in common, that they should stand in solidarity with each other, that they should recognize injustice precisely on the basis that it offends our equality. No, that they should define themselves as strongly as possible by the particular group to which they belong. And while this particular story is extreme in the way it worked and for the fact that it happened in a public school, um, there are many similar things happening in schools across the country. Most elite private schools in the country now have uh, racially segregated affinity groups, often as early as the third, the second, the first grades. So teachers will come in and say, the black students go over there, the Latino students go over there, the Asian students go over there, the white students go over there. And I particularly worry about what happens to those white kids, not because they might be uncomfortable, I think it's fine to be uncomfortable as part of your education sometimes, but because everything I've learned from history and social science teaches me that how we identify is pretty fungible. It can change from situation to situation. But once you say, this is my group, this is the group I identify with, you're very likely to have in-group bias, very likely to treat the members of that group much better than members of out-groups. So I thought very hard about how to open the book, and I care a lot about free speech and maintaining a culture of free speech, and I thought about using one of the many stories of people being unjustly punished for things they said or were purported to have said. But I wanted to show that this debate goes beyond that, right? This is not a book about cancel culture, because there's actually many ways in which this novel ideology about race, gender, and sexual orientation that has become so influential in the last years is reshaping what we teach kids, is reshaping public policy, is reshaping how corporations are run in the day-to-day. And I think that is ultimately even more important. So that's what I wanted to put the focus on. Yeah. And I think that the reason that story works very well uh, as the opening, and I can I sympathize with you very much about thinking carefully about how to open a book or how to open an article or an essay, you know, that, that can often be the most difficult part. The reason I think that story works well is it because it lets you know from the outset that one of the problems with the identity politics that you're writing about and that a lot of us are concerned about is that it poses as progressive, but it has very regressive consequences. In this case, regressing right back to a segregationist mindset. It poses as anti-racist, but it has racist consequences very often uh, in terms of separating the races. And as you've just said there, it's a new form of socialization, but it's socializing kids into a very rigid, fixed idea of their particularist identities rather than the universal values of, of solidarity and what we might have in common. So it really does open up a lot of the themes of your book. And in your book, you do... And very briefly, one of the things I, I try to do in the book is to argue back against what I call not farism. So I think one understandable instinct is to say, look, a lot of the young activists who are most convinced by these ideas are well-intentioned and they generally want to make the world a better place. And I think that's often true, not in every case, but often that that is true. But therefore, it's tempting to frame this debate as, well, perhaps Sometimes those kids go a little bit too far. And haven't we all gone a little bit too far? When we were in college, didn't we have beliefs that, you know, in retrospect, perhaps we think we're a little silly in certain ways, right? Um, and even for I do have genuine compassion for the people who believe in this ideology. I think often they, ha- they do act for seemingly noble motives. I don't think it's a matter of going too far in the right direction. I think it's actually going in the wrong direction. And that's another thing that this story makes very clear. I get the concerns that motivate some of those practices, but separating kids by race does not get us 
closer to a better world. It's not going too far in creating a better world. It's creating a worse world. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. So I want to ask you a, a couple of fundamental questions about basically what are you talking about? What are you talking about when you use a term like identity synthesis? So that's how you refer to many of these problems in your book. Your, bo- your book really traces the origins of this thinking. Uh, it's spread through certain institutions, the impact that it has. You, you, do, you take us on an, an intellectual journey through the rise of identity politics, which is what I, I've been calling it for a very long time. So give us the elevator pitch for what you mean by identity synthesis. So, so what is identity synthesis and why do you use that phrase rather than identity politics? Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's a really weird thing that we have a genuinely novel ideology that obviously has all kinds of roots and other ideas, but that is at this point very distinct from what left-wing thinking used to be like 50 or 25 years ago and distinct from the right, distinct from liberalism. Um, and we don't have a term for it. And that's actually rare. When you think about it, you know, some people might like socialism, some people might dislike socialism, but they can agree to call it socialism. Um, and we don't have a term for these ideas that is both precise and sufficiently neutral that it can serve as a basis for a debate. So what I am talking about, broadly speaking, is quote-unquote woke ideas. But the problem is that if you go on about woke this and woke that, you sort of start sounding like an old man shouting at the clouds. Um, identity politics, I think, it's just a little bit too broad and a little bit too vague. Um, I, throughout the book, contrast the proud tradition of the gay rights movement that fought for the achievement of same-sex marriage with the parts of the gay rights movement that those activists had vanquished first in order to have that transformative impact on society, who said, no, we want to abolish marriage because that's a terrible bourgeois institution. We want no part of it. Right? I contrast the activism of Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr., who recognized the injustices of their age, who called out the hypocrisy of people who talked about all men being born equal while African-Americans were enslaved or later lived in segregation, Um, but who insisted that we live up to those universal values, that African-Americans have their promissory note from the Bank of Justice, as MLK put it, respected, with the founders of critical race theory, who explicitly see themselves in conflict with a civil rights tradition and say we should make how people are treated more explicitly depend on the group to which they belong. And so, you know, I think in a way you could say Frederick Douglass engaged in identity politics. He rallied African-Americans. MLK engaged in identity politics. But it's a very different kind of identity politics from the form of identity politics I worry about today. So that's why I find sort of the term identity politics to be a little bit too imprecise and broad. So I came up with this term, the identity synthesis, because I am talking about a set of ideas that place identity categories like race, gender, and sexual orientation at the very center of analysis of what is happening in society and what should happen in society. And because these ideas do constitute a synthesis of different intellectual influences, like postmodernism, postcolonialism, and critical race theory. Now, for the purposes of writing the book and of talking about the book, I think this term has been very useful to me. I realize it's not particularly pithy and perhaps it's not going to take on. I don't really care what term we end up choosing. I think Freddie DeBoer said, I'll call it anything you damn well want me to call it. I'll call it the thing. Just tell me what to call it so we can have a conversation. Um, but I think we, we we need a term that allows us to actually recognize these ideas as interesting, novel, worth engaging with, and in my opinion, ultimately damaging and wrong-headed. 
Uh, yeah, I think, it, it, you know, if we look back at, as you say, it may well have been the case that Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King and others from history were engaged in a form of identity politics, but that was a struggle to be included in the universal values that had already been laid out by their society, to be included in the life of the Republic. And I recently reread W.E.B. Du Bois' book, The Souls of Black Folk, which um, published in 1901, I think, which makes the case astoundingly for the right of uh, the freed slaves, the, the, uh, the freed black people of America, to be included in the values that America had outlined. And he makes the point that America won't really be America until that happens. So there was that struggle to be included in the universal values, whereas what we have now, and you touch on this very well in the book, is a struggle to liberate oneself from universalism, from universal values, and to sink back into what is particular about our ethnic groups or our racial identity or whatever else it might be. And this makes these ideas um, not just antithetical to the universalist aspirations that have always defined most parts of the left, but antithetical to what has always been the dominant tradition in African-American political thought, where there was always a strain of black nationalism, a strain of saying, in a way understandable, given the experiences we've had and the way we've been treated in this country, perhaps we should go off and found our own country or return to Africa or whatever. There's always a strain of African-American thinking, and it's certainly you can understand why people might have come up with that conclusion. But I think it was the wrong conclusion, and it was always the conclusion that was at the radical fringes. And now, in a strange way, it has become, in certain respects, the mainstream of it, of, of the American left. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Here at Spike, we know that many of our freedom-loving listeners are itching to start their own businesses, but we also know how much of a challenge it is to get started. Luckily, there's a way to make it happen, and it sounds like this. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the pioneering all-in-one commerce platform that gives you the power to launch and grow your independent business. Shopify empowers aspiring business owners like you all over the world, whether you specialize in blown glass fruit bowls or homemade sushi rolls. Whatever you're selling, Shopify simplifies how you sell your goods both in person and online. Setting up shop, receiving payments, and growing your business is all made effortlessly simple. Now, I know what you're thinking. How is all of this possible? Well, Shopify focuses on making the basics completely intuitive, from a smooth point-of-sale system ready for your shop to a centralized digital setup. Plus, Shopify will help you expand your reach by putting your business on social media marketplaces like Instagram and TikTok. Don't worry about losing your freedom. Shopify puts you at the center of your business. Refined customization tools let you constantly adapt your strategy without having to learn new time-consuming skills. So focusing on the big picture is easier than ever. Even if you don't have any experience running a business, Shopify is here to help you every step of the way so that you can achieve your goals. So why wait? If you want to bring your business dreams to life, it's time to get stuck in with Shopify. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash Brendan, all lowercase. Go to shopify.co.uk slash Brendan to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.co.uk slash Brendan. 
Yeah, you, you, you made a point um, uh, a few moments ago, which I think is a very important one, and I wanted to touch on this with you. you. You made the point that what is often packaged as left politics today would not have been recognized as left politics by someone even just 20 years ago, 25 years ago, certainly 50 years ago or 100 years ago. You know, what people present as a kind of left-wing, even Marxist analysis these days is usually in relation to something like transgenderism or the demand for very particularist identity concerns. I mean, that's, you know, you see radical students on campus who will swear on the Bible that they are hardcore Marxist-Leninists, but they never talk about class. They never talk about economic issues or economic power or um, equality in the workplace. They're always talking about very particular identity concerns. You've made the point that it's wrong to call all this stuff cultural Marxism. And I, I really agree with that. And I wanted to hear why you think it's important not to do that. Because one of the things I find very frustrating about some of the right-wing critique of identitarianism is that they will just say, this is Marxism reheated. This is Marxism repackaged. And I, I always want to say to them, look, if it's Marxism you're worried about, you should be delighted by the rise of identity politics because it proves the death of those old left-wing ideas. So why do you think it's important to challenge the notion that this is Marxism, whether of the cultural or the, or the political variety? Yeah. So, you know, I, I was open to the idea that it might be cultural Marxism. I, I set out to read the intellectual history and try and figure out where these ideas trace from. And uh, I, I, I read and reread, you know, figures in the Marxist tradition that I'd studied in, in, at university. I mean, you know, Karl Marx and Antonio Gramsci and people in the Frankfurt School like Adorno and Horkheimer and so on, sort of contemporary critical theorists. Um, those are the people who are claimed by, uh, you know, the few people in the far right who have tried to actually tell the intellectual history of these ideas as uh, ancestors of this ideology. And the problem is it just doesn't add up. You don't get the main themes of our contemporary social justice politics by looking at those figures. Um, taking Saying that you take social class out of Marxism and put in instead identity categories like race, gender, and sexual orientation is a little bit like saying that you take the ball out of football. Right? Marxism is essentially about economic class. This is not much left in the activity once you take that out. There's actually uh, also an interesting structural dissimilarity. There are some structural similarities that all anti-liberal philosophies share, and that is true both of Marxism and of the identity synthesis. But there's a very important distinction in goal that I find to be interesting, which is that Marxism says, you know, politics revolves around class struggle and the proletariat will eventually come to self-consciousness and it'll carry out a revolution. And then there's a little bit of a black box. And then you have the achievement of socialist and communist societies in which eventually the proletariat becomes the universal class. So we all become members of the universal class if we've survived the previous decades. Um, and at that point, we're all brethren. At that point, there's no distinctions. At that point, we are all living in this wonderful state of grace and solidarity. Now, I don't find that utopian promise to be realistic, and I think communist regimes around the world have disproven it quite definitively, but I get why that's appealing, right? I get why there's an endpoint there that sounds incredibly attractive. Um, what's interesting about the identity synthesis is that it explicitly and angrily rejects the possibility of that utopian promise, right? If you recognize that race is a social construct and that it's uh, actually uh, sort of artificially imposed and caused a lot of damage uh, historically. One response to this uh, is from the race abolitionists, from people like the African-American scholars Karen and Barbara Fields, who say, if it's such a damaging con concept, let's get rid of it, right? Let's operate without 
race. Let's liberate ourselves from the malign influence it has on the world. I, I don't exactly agree with them for various reasons, but that is a utopian promise, right? Let's create a world in which we no longer operate in these racial categories, and that's going to lead to true justice. That is the equivalent of something like the Marxist utopian promise, right? But people like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and the others I chronicle in the book, they don't want to say that. But they say, no, we need to create a society in which how we treat each other and how the state treats all of us is always explicitly dependent on the racial group of which we're a part. So there's this important structural dissimilarity. And then finally, I just think that the intellectual lineage that I've discovered and developed uh, in the book, um, which goes from Michel Foucault to post-colonial thinkers like Edward Said and uh, Gayatri Spivak, two critical race theorists like uh, Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, can actually explain to us where the themes of our contemporary social justice politics comes from. You get from Foucault the deep skepticism about universal values and objective truth. You get from Said the use of a kind of politicized form of discourse analysis in which what it is to do politics can include and often centers around things like celebrating or critiquing or rendering problematic the Barbie movie. Um, you get from Spivak an embrace of what you call strategic essentialism, the fact that you might in theory recognize that race is a social construct, but in practice, you're going to want society to rule off as much as possible around race. You get from uh, Derek Bell, a deep skepticism about our ability to make progress on any of those things, the claim that our societies today are as racist as they were 50 or 100 years ago, and the rejection of universalist solutions, including a universal welfare state, to these kinds of problems. And finally, you get from Kimberly Crenshaw, the idea of intersectionality that is later used to say that if you stand at a different intersection of identities from me, I'm not going to be able to understand you. We're not going to be able uh, to uh, truly uh, have a form of solidarity uh, rooted in mutual empathy. And so all I can do is to defer to you if you are part of a uh, more oppressed group. And those themes together, I think, do explain a lot of what's happening on the internet, on social media, in universities, in corporations today. Yeah, that's a that's a very good outline of the uh, synthesis that you draw together in your book of these various ideas and, and, and where they come from. I did want to ask you about the tensions between the view that everything's a social construct, you know, everything's an invention of kind of um, language or, or, or just social conceptions. And then on one side, and then on the other side, this very essentialist view that some of the woke or uh, the identitarians take to issues like race and so on. I wanted to tease that out with you, because I think in relation to what you were saying there about Marxism and, and socialism and those old ideologies, which I think have now withered away and are probably not coming back, certainly not in the way that they existed previously, you know, the difference, of course, between class and contemporary identity is that class was much more an understanding that it was a social relation that you had in society at that time. And it very often impacted on how much you earned, how much power you had in the workplace, how much money you had and so on. But it was something that could be changed, that could be overhauled. And that was one of the um, aspirations of uh, certainly of Marxists and even trade unionists and others on the old left. Um, altering the social relation to the benefit of working class people. So there was a fluidity and an aspirational universalist element to that politics. Whereas identity politics, the identity synthesis, as you call it, is very often quite essentialist. You know, you're in your intersection over there, I'm in mine over here, we will never understand each other. It makes a crime of solidarity, essentially, or at least makes solidarity very, very difficult. But at the same time, it has this very social constructionist view so we, we live in a world now where apparently you can change your sex with a click of a fingers, but then black people and white people will never understand each other because they are a million of miles apart. How do you explain that tension uh, in, in the identity world? 
Yeah, and that's something that I was also confused by because there is a lack of theoretical coherence here, there, which makes it hard to understand. Uh, but I really did have a light bulb moment in reading the intellectual history. And it comes from the fact that, you know, Michel Foucault is a sort of universal solvent. Um, you know, he gives you the tools to criticize society in very effective ways. He makes the argument that, uh, you know, France in the post war era pretends to be more humane in how it treats the mentally ill and prisoners and sexual minorities, but actually it's as oppressive as it ever was. He argues that we should be really skeptical about identity categories because they wrongly essentialize uh, who you are. He was in our terms a homosexual, a man who had sex with men, but he'd rejected that label because he thought it constrains too much the variability of social experience. And therefore he sort of explicitly disowned the traditional Marxist aspiration for intellectuals to speak on behalf of a proletariat, to raise the class consciousness of the proletarians by you know, synthesizing what workers should really be thinking, right? And people like Gayatri Spivak, post-colonial thinkers, were simultaneously attracted to and repelled by those ideas. They were attracted to them because they understandably felt that India is a newly liberated country. They didn't want to just sort of take over whole hog uh, some of the ideas that had helped to justify colonialism. They felt they were in need of a new ideology. And so Foucault was very useful in being able to critique colonial discourses, as Edward Said did in Orientalism. But... They wanted a politics that could allow for more real political change that Foucault was very skeptical about. And people like Spivak felt that, you know, perhaps white workers in the streets of Paris can speak for themselves, but what she called the subaltern in the third world, people in Kolkata who may have grown up without being able to go to school and achieve literacy and, you know, who have to worry about having dinner on, on the plate in the evening, they can't speak for themselves. Somebody needs to speak on their behalf. And so she came up with a really strange concept, which she said, look, these critiques of essentialist identity categories that people like Foucault and Derrida make, that's basically right. Philosophically speaking, they are correct. But for practical political purposes, we have to act as though these essentialist categories of identity were true. And so she coins this term of strategic essentialism to talk about that. And that's what's happening today, right? If you go to an activist space, people will say, race is a social construct. And then in the next sentence, they'll go on to talk about what black and brown people want or what BIPOC people demand, right? So you see that sort of lip service to the idea of, let's be careful about identity categories, and then the immediate owning of these quite crude identity categories. Now, one of the things I enjoyed about doing the intellectual history, the book has four parts. And the first part, trace of intellectual history. The second part shows how these ideas become influential in the mainstream. The third part critiques the application of these ideas to areas from free speech to cultural appropriation to these kind of forms of progressive separatism we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation to equity and race-sensitive public policies, right? But the thinkers I read in, in the first part are subtle and interesting, even if I fundamentally disagree with many of them. Uh, and they themselves come to be quite horrified by what becomes of their ideas. And so Spivak herself later disowned the term of strategic essentialism, saying that in many contexts, it had just become the union ticket for more vulgar form of, forms of essentialism, the thing you can pay lip service to in order to then disown your disquiet about the essentializing nature of identity. Um, and, you know, in reference to uh, tea wallers who sell chai in the streets of India, um, she, she, she mocked the identity wallers at American universities and how humorless they were. Just on the Marxist, the post-Marxist element of this. One thing that um, you touch on uh, is that 
You know, a lot of this springs from the rejection of grand narratives, particularly from the rejection of universalist grand narratives and the rejection of Marxism or, or that sense amongst uh, European thinkers in the 20th century that Marxism failed. What do we do now? What, where do we go? But one thing that you say is that they, they may have rejected some of the ideas, the old ideas of the left, but they retained some of the authoritarian instincts of the Soviet regime and Stalinism in particular. And we see that still today, don't we? I mean, you know, one doesn't have to go around calling everyone Joseph Stalin to see that there is that kind of left justified authoritarianism is fairly rampant and not only on campuses, in, increasingly in the workplace in everyday life where people do face discipline and reprimand for saying the wrong thing, for stepping out of their lane, for holding opinions they shouldn't hold. So for example, the civil service here in the UK, which is obviously the organisation um, responsible for running the country, some of them have been watching videos which instruct them on how to correctly address a trans woman, why you should allow her or him, as I would say, go into certain areas and so on. So there is that instruction at the core level of the state. There is that kind of very careful instruction on how one ought to think and what one might be allowed to say. How problematic do you think that kind of the retaining of the Soviet instinct, even as they have rejected uh, the universal left ideas of old? How problematic do you think that's become in, in relation to freedom of speech and freedom of thought? Yeah. So, so the way that I think about politics, uh, there are two axes. Um, there's the left-right axis both on economic questions and in a different kind of way and sociocultural questions. And then there's the liberal authoritarian axis, the axis where on the one side you want to stand up for free speech and free assembly and freedom of worship and all of those core individual rights we need to maintain a free society. And where on the other side, you want to impose your ideas on others by force, where you think my faction can win and empowers the right way of living, the right way of dealing with each other, on everybody else. I have historically been on the liberal left. Uh, that is where I see myself. But I think the liberal authoritarian access is much more important than the left-right access. I can speak to somebody who's far left and liberal, or who's center-right and liberal, or within certain constraints, somebody who's very robustly right-wing and liberal. What I worry about is the people who are authoritarians, whether it be people like Narendra Modi and Recep Erdogan on the authoritarian right, or whether it be people like Hugo Chavez, or increasingly, I think, um, you know, the fringe left in Britain that used to have a lot of power until recently, or things like the Democratic Socialists of America that have just uh, celebrated Hamas's attack and murder of innocent civilians in the United States. You know, there is a tradition of democratic socialism. I'm not a socialist myself, but there's a tradition of democratic socialism by people like the founders of Dissent magazine, by people like the political theorist Michael Walzer. But it's a very proud tradition. But when they called themselves democratic socialist, the term democratic was doing a lot of work. It was signaling a commitment to being willing to call out and condemn the undemocratic nature of so many socialist regimes, particularly in Eastern Europe. And they did that heroically as they were being attacked by many other people on the far left. When people talk about democratic socialism today, they often don't see the tension or the potential tension between those two terms. They think that they are democratic by virtue of being socialists. And as a result, they end up making excuses for the terrible regime in Venezuela, for other left-wing regimes around the world, and in the last days for, for Hamas. And that, I think, is a great loss of 
intellectual seriousness of reckoning with what the world looks like on that part of a political spectrum. Now, when it comes to sort of free speech, I think I worry a lot about uh, restrictions on uh, the rights we have as citizens relative to the state. There are now examples of people being jailed for expressing views, many of which I don't share or find horrendous. Uh, and I think that is very wrong. I'm glad that in the United States we have the First Amendment, which at least provides that freedom of last resort against being put in handcuffs for what you say. And I think that uh, uh, countries like the United Kingdom should adopt similar standards. But as defenders of free speech, like John Stuart Mill have said from the beginning, the worst social tyranny comes not from the threat of uh, state agents showing up at your door, but from the fear that what you say might get you fired from your job, might get you shunned by your neighbors, might make you a social pariah. And today, many people fear that form of social death for good reasons. So I worry very much about, for example, the power that private companies now have over how people can live. And one of the things I call for in the book is that companies that are necessary for you to be able to lead a meaningful life people like you know, credit banks, credit card companies, airlines, train operators should not be allowed to refuse to do business with you on the basis of your political beliefs. It's one thing we don't pay your bill, but it's another thing if uh, you know suddenly NetWest or HSBC decides whether or not they want to have a financial relationship with you on the basis of your political views. Um, uh, you know, neither whether you can get water or electricity at home, nor whether you can maintain a bank account, nor whether you can board a plane should be dependent on the views you express privately. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book. And I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology and it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now, on with the show. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. I feel over the past year or so that um, some right-wing libertarians, which include some very good people, some very interesting people, I think they're not quite prepared for the discussion we need to have about the, the form tyranny takes today because they're very wedded to uh, free market values, private property values, whereas I think there are times when it is perfectly legitimate for society to say to a business, you're not allowed to do that. You have to uphold the free the free speech rights of the citizen involved in this. Uh, uh, and we already do that for some companies, right? Even sort of privatized water or electricity companies aren't, al aren't allowed to say, Sorry, Grandpa, you said something offensive on Facebook. You're not going to have electricity, right? Um, so clearly, that is something we're already prepared to do, and we should do it for a broader range of companies 
that citizens need to be able to use for for core functions. Yeah, absolutely. And we've already told companies, you know, you, I'm sorry, you can't sack a woman just because she gets pregnant or you can't refuse to employ someone because he's black or a Muslim or whatever. So I think it, it follows that we should say, well, I'm sorry, you can't sack that person or debank that person just because they have a different view to you on the trans question or whatever else it might be. Um, yeah, I really agree with that. Okay, Yasha, I want to push you on a couple of things, particularly on the populism question. Uh, you've written quite extensively, uh, extensively about populism over the past few years. I'll put my cards on the table. I'm a populist. I don't consider myself a right-wing populist. I'm certainly not tr- not a Trumpian. Um, but I do find the populist moment that we're living through very interesting and very invigorating and a, a necessary corrective, I think, to the excesses of the technocratic establishment uh, and the various things that they've been doing in recent years that have had a detrimental impact on living standards and liberty and lots of other things too. I guess I want to put it to you that there have been moments in history, quite a few moments in history, when populism has been the thing that has shoved society towards the kind of things that you and I are interested in, which is greater freedom, greater choice. Think about England in the 1640s, for example, and the revolts that were taking place, or France in the 1780s and the 1790s, however it might have ended up, and huge protests in the 20th century that we're all familiar with, the suffragettes, the civil rights movement. Um, Martin Luther King was uh, considered himself a fairly populist person. There are moments at which the populace coming together, sharing ideas, sharing pamphlets, talking, engaging, sometimes being rough and ready, has expanded liberty and democracy and choice in ways that I think have uh, enriched all of our lives. So is there something specific about today's populism that worries you, or is it populism in general that you sometimes feel a bit edgy about? Well, let me talk about two things. One is where we agree, which is the need to speak up against many of the failings of our system today in a robust way. And secondly, about what we actually mean by populists, because I would, I think I have a different understanding of what a populist is and therefore would not recognize some of the people you're talking about as, as populists. So on the first thing, look, as a political scientist, I know there's many countries that are deeply corrupt. And what you often get is politicians who speak to that corruption, uh, complain about that corruption in very convincing ways, in ways that are absolutely truthful. But often those politicians then turn around and end up being more corrupt than their predecessors. That's a very common pattern in politics. So that doesn't make me think, oh, those foolish voters, they shouldn't have worried about corruption. It doesn't make me think that system was not corrupt, but it does make me worry that voting for those politicians is not going to serve the goals that these voters are rightly pursuing. And I think that with populism, we're often uh, in similar territory. Um, that not all of the grievances, but some of the grievances that uh, populists address are truthful, that they are, are right about the shortcomings of our institutions, that they rightly channel anger at the widespread feeling that I've talked about a lot in the last years, uh, that people have, that the people in charge look down on them, right? I mean, the, the mix between Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables and uh, you know, Gordon Brown's that bigoted woman, right? That sense that the people who are in charge smile to your face, but behind your back tell you, actually, you're a terrible person. I absolutely get why that makes people mad. And I think to hold back the populists, more uh, liberal uh, or more longstanding political parties need to learn how not to condescend to voters in that way. I'm a genuine small D Democrat in the sense that I think that 
most people most of the time are pretty reasonable. I'm not schizophrenic, so I don't you know, agree with every opinion poll that's ever been published. I'm not going to change my mind because 51% of people say this or that. But I think by and large, people, even if I might have disagreements with them, even if sometimes I think I'm right and the majority is wrong, are decent moral people who want to create a better world and who, when they tune into politics, are pretty sensible instincts. Uh, and I'm struck by how many of my dear friends and colleagues seem to not be Democrats in that sense, seem to have become convinced that the average voter in Britain, the average voter in America is deep down just a, a terrible bigot. And if they disagree with them, it's because they are irredeemable. And I think that's really, really damaging. So so we agree about that. But the question is, how do we get a politics that actually redresses those problems? And that's where we come to the second point. When I talk about a populist I'm talking not about somebody who speaks on behalf of the people. Most decent politicians do that. I'm not talking about somebody uh, who's anti-elitist in itself. That's often a, a very prominent feature of populism. But a lot of politicians are anti-elitists. Barack Obama, certainly when he was running for the presidency the first time, was an anti-elitist, saying that Washington is broken and fixed, and I'm not from D.C. I've just been elected senator a couple of years ago, but I'm not really off the place. I'm going to come in and clean the place up, right? But populists aren't just anti-elitists. They're also anti-pluralists. They're saying, I and I alone truly represent the people. And if you disagree with me, then it's not just that we have an important disagreement about politics. It's not just that you're wrong and I'm right. It's that you're illegitimate. It's that you're a traitor. It's that you're an enemy of a people in some important way. And that sets these populist politicians up, once they're in office, to refuse to accept the kinds of key protections we need to sustain our democratic system to accept uh, independent institutions, to accept limits on what they can do in office, to accept uh, journalists and newspapers who criticize them. And I found that to be a very useful empirical predictor. When you look at politicians who are populist in that sense, refusing to accept the legitimacy of the other side, you see the warning signs of how you can turn into a country like Turkey, that has now jailed thousands of journalists and civil servants, or a country like Venezuela that has uh, you know, driven into exile a vast percentage of its population and jailed a lot of people. Even for one is right-wing, one is left-wing. What they share is that populist rhetoric from the start, which delegitimizes legitimate opposition. Yeah, there have certainly been populist authoritarians or politicians who would call themselves populist who, who have done that. But one thing uh, that has struck me is that a lot of what you've just described in terms of delegitimizing rather than engaging with one's critics and um, pushing debate aside by saying, listen, I've got the answers, not you. Um, you also see a lot of that from the anti-populist side and from the technocratic elites uh, as existed uh, have existed over the past few decades. So for example, if you look at the British example after Brexit, I mean, the majority of that kind of argument that you've made, and I agree that would be a problematic view of politics to have, the majority of that kind of argument actually came from the side of the establishment that was in favour of the European Union. So they were continually on a campaign of delegitimization of the vote for Brexit. The public is low information. Um, they didn't know what they were doing. They're not sufficiently educated. They're in the grip of xenophobia. They've been uh, brainwashed by demagogues, which was an interesting mirror of the kind of false consciousness argument that you see from the pseudo-Marxist kind of woke left. Uh, you know, they say we're in the grip of false consciousness and then the liberal elite, for want of a better word, say that we're in the grip of a kind of wave of demagogic brain invasion. 
So there was a lot of that, but it was kind of from the other side. The thing that worries me about some of the critique of populism is that it problematizes not only populism, but it problematizes democracy itself. And, you know, when I hear, for example, anti-populists in the UK referring to certain voters as gammon, which is a, a word that's become popular in Britain, gammon referring to red-faced middle-aged men who are anti-European Union and don't like the Labour Party and don't like Jeremy Corbyn, etc., when I hear them being referred to as gammon, it does bring to mind Edmund Burke's attack on the swinish multitude who were rising up in France in the 17, late 1700s. You know, this swinish multitude who would tr- who will tr- uh, trounce uh, manners and uh, nobility and decency and everything else. Do you not think there's a problem that if one were to overreact to populism, there could end up being restrictions on democracy that could prove problematic for everyone? Yeah, absolutely. If we overreact to it, for sure. But but I think in general, my attitude is that the right response is to argue from principle and to say what you believe in a reasonable way without worrying that perhaps somebody else might somehow invoke some superficially similar arguments in order to justify bad things. So one of the you know things that keep being asked again and again and again in, in, in interviews in the United States is you are criticizing the woke. And people like Ron DeSantis are criticizing the woke. And Ron DeSantis has passed deeply illiberal laws in Florida restricting what he can teach and say at public universities. Don't you worry that you're helping him make the argument? My answer to that is no. I have clearly opposed those laws. It's absurd to me that I teach seminars where my students learn to debate topics like free speech and cultural appropriation. And I'm very clear on what I believe, but I'm not indoctrinating them in the classroom. And I obviously give them materials to argue the other side as well, to think through the case for the other side. And I would not be able to assign those readings in the state of Florida at a public university because of those laws, um, which is absurd. So I've been very loud in opposing those ideas, but that's not a reason for me not to criticize quote-unquote woke ideas where I think that they're deeply damaging, right? And I would say the same in this case. I do worry about some of the reaction to populism that has started to delegitimize any form of political expression that people disagree with. I avoid studiously using the term misinformation because it has become such a vague political concept that you can apply to any kind of narrative you don't like because it happens to undermine your own point of view. Um, And so I'm happy to stand up to uh, supposed opponents of populism who are themselves turning and liberal in that kind of way. I recognize that can be a danger, but that's not a reason to throw the concept out of use because we need something to explain what is happening in India, what has happened in Hungary and Turkey, what has happened in Venezuela. Those are places where people were democratically elected. The ones they were in office, they concentrated power in their own hands in such ways. They undermined independent institutions like electoral commissions and courts and so on. They fought against independent media to such an extent that to varying degrees, I just mentioned a whole bunch of different countries, it is no longer possible for voters to throw those people out of office by democratic means. And democracy is not a one-time election for a king. It is a process where the voters are supposed to be able to change their mind. And so I worry a lot that in many countries in the world, that's become harder over the last 10 years. And I think the best way to explain how that's happened because it didn't happen through military putches, it didn't happen in the way it did in the 70s and 80s through tanks rolling up to parliaments, is by understanding this process of gradual erosion of independent institutions that I do think is covered with this rhetoric of populism. By the claim that you're making a country more democratic when actually 
you're making it less democratic. And then there's questions about what's the right answer to that. And I agree with you that some of the answer to that has been wrongheaded and damaging and and, and, and should be condemned um, in its own right. Okay, Yasha, I want to, to ask you, it would be remiss of us not to talk about the big event of our time, I think, the worst anti-Jewish pogrom of modern times, essentially, which you referred to earlier, which was Hamas's invasion of southern Israel and their commission of what seemed to have been extraordinary crimes of barbarism. And I want to get your views on this, but I want to get your views on this. It's a very specific issue that deserves uh, very focused attention, but I also want to get your views on it vis-a-vis what we've been talking about and the response to it in the West, which has, I feel like I'm losing my mind, if I'm being honest, when I look at some of the response in the West and the um, abject unwillingness of certain voices in the West to outright condemn this, the acts of Hamas, um, to say that this is wrong and immoral and evil and to offer solidarity to the victims. It has been extraordinary. And I think it has been influenced by some of the ideologies you and I have been talking about in terms of a kind of rotten identitarianism that I think has caused, uh, uh, rotted the minds of some people. What have you made of the past few days prior to when we're having this conversation, the, the event itself and, and the way in which people have reacted from certain sections of the West? So let me say just a couple of things about the events themselves and and and, and then come to the link here. Um, you know, this is the worst murder of Jewish civilians in a very, very long time. And it betrayed just the sheer brutality of the Hamas ideology that is the desire not just to destroy the state of Israel, but to kill Jewish grandmothers and babies and everyone in between. And I think any reasonable person must be shocked by that. You know, people in public life who issue statements and condemnations about a million events uh, going on in the world who refuse to do that about this subject, I think are showing their true colors. And, and 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 that has been true in the last days. That doesn't mean that you can't criticize Israeli government policy. It doesn't mean that you can't, as I have done many times in my life, criticize Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't worry about the suffering that some Palestinian civilians will now undergo as well. All of that is fine. But you've got to start with a recognition of just the unprecedented scale of the barbarism and the cruelty in the last days. So why is it that so many people are unwilling to do that? Why is it that from some British journalists and figures of the far left, including people like Jeremy Corbyn, to the Democratic Socialists for America, people have been unwilling to condemn the attacks by Hamas in a clear way? Why is it that American universities, including some of the institutions I'm associated with, which issue statements about all kinds of other things within hours of them happening, didn't for days do that until, in the case of Harvard, Larry Summers, a former president of the university, called the university out. There was an outcry on social media, and then finally the university saw fit to act. I think this has to do with one of the key concepts of the identity synthesis, which is that of structural racism. Now, it used to be that when we talk about racism, we talk about racist attitudes. We talk about somebody who believes that a different group is uh, inferior in intelligence and strength or in the kind of moral importance it has. And over the last decades, we have adopted a conception of racism, which in itself, I think, can be useful in certain contexts as well, of structural racism. 
But for example, you know, when a cab driver, this is less relevant now in the age of Uber, but it's a classic example, when a cab driver refuses to pick up a black passenger, they may be acting on, you know, due to some societal background conditions, but perhaps that black passenger is more likely to go to a part of town where it's then harder to pick up the next cab fare. So that passenger may themselves not be prejudiced, perhaps that cab driver is themselves black. But it is a form of structural racism that black residents will experience, making it harder for them to get a cab. And that's really frustrating, right? The problem comes, and this is true in gender, this is true in other areas of our pu public discourse. When you completely substitute one of these concepts for another. The problem is not to say there's the classic kind of racism as structural racism, and they're both useful concepts for understanding certain aspects of society. The problem comes when you start to say, as many people on the progressive left have, you've got the concept of racism wrong. Racism is never about individual attributes. It's not at all about how people think about each other. It's only of a structural kind. Because then you cease having the language to express why the murderous racism of Hamas is racism. Because all you can see is power relations and saying if a relatively privileged group is harmed by a relatively less privileged group, that can't be racism. A black person, according to Vice magazine, cannot be racist towards a non-black person because black people supposedly are at the bottom of a pile, right? Um, this made it impossible for American media to describe adequately the racist murder of Orthodox Jews in Jersey City perpetrated uh, by a black anti-Semite a number of years ago. And this helps to explain why these uh, universities and the DEI departments of big corporations that are willing to speak about any social injustice in the world have not been able to make statements at all or in a uh, adequately fast manner over the last days, because their only concept is this concept of structural racism. And that defines the murder of what looks like over a thousand Jewish civilians out of existence. Now, I want to make la one last point, which is one question I've been asked over and over again as I've been talking about the identity trap, as I've been talking about my new book, has been, you know, since I do worry about the threat from the far right and the threat from the populist right, why talk about the problems of left-wing ideas? Isn't this the sideshow? You know, in the age of Donald Trump, shouldn't you just be razor-focused on that? I think that answer is often in bad faith and it's wrong-headed for a number of reasons. But I think and I hope that over the last few days, some of my friends and colleagues on the left have started to understand the reasons for that. But the stakes here are high in themselves. And that unlike you, unless you call out these genuinely bad and dangerous ideas on the left, you are creating the conditions in which people can end up celebrating uh, Hamas's murder of innocence. Yeah, I think that's very well put. And the thing that has struck me over the past few days is I keep thinking, where is Antifa? Where are the anti where's the anti-fascist left? Now I didn't have any faith in that movement, particularly, especially how given how they've behaved in recent years. But these are the kind of people who talk about the 1930s coming back all the time, who see fascism everywhere. You know, if a, if a group of gender-critical feminists hold a protest um, raising questions about transgenderism, they will counter-protest, they will say this is a transgenocide, they will call those women fascists. They they, they use the word fascist about everyone they disagree with. But then when you have mobs on the streets of Sydney saying, gas the Jews, fuck the Jews, when you have mobs in London outside the Israeli embassy laughing at images of dead Jews on their holding up their phones, laughing at them, saying your people are dead, um, uh, that's good. Essentially, that's what they said. And when you have school kids in the UK taking off, Jewish school kids taking off their blazers, being advised to take off their blazers so they don't get recognised as Jews. And of course, when you have the slaughter of Jews in Israel, the anti-fascist left, the, the left that's worried about the return of the 1930s, have said virtually nothing, or they've said, well, that's just resistance. 
that's a, that's a fight back. However crude, it's a fight back against the oppressor. So when something very much like the 1930s did rear its head, they said all the wrong things. And it, it feels to me like this could be a turning point event. And we've had a few of them. We had it with 9-11. Were you going to be on the side of Western values or were you going to be on the side of those who hate Western values? I'm not trying to sound like George W. Bush here in, in relation to military conflict, but there was a moral test raised by events like that, which is, are we going to defend Western civilization or not? The Charlie Hebdo massacre raised a similar question and lots of Western liberals sadly failed that question. And I think this event does as well. I think it raises a question about, even in a, in a more pressing um, way, I think, a more visceral way, even than those previous events. So my question for you is, um, do you think we'll give the right answer this time? Will we defend the values that are important to our societies, including freedom and equality and anti-racism and opposing anti-Semitism? Or do you think we'll fail again? You know, after big events like this, it's always tempting to think that it's going to be a sea change. And then after a few weeks, people manage to find excuses to minimize what happened or to sort of squirrel back into the positions they've held for a long time. So I'm not sure what I'm hopeful that this is going to be a great change at sort of a collective level. But I, but I have been heartened by the moral clarity of most people in our politics over the last days. I mean, there's been some deeply shameful voices, uh, but they were genuinely in a minority. And when you look at the transformation of where the Labour Party stands on this today to uh, what its reaction would have been under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, um, that is happening. And it's going to shape a lot of people. I mean, for me, Charlie Hebdo was radicalizing. Radicalizing because cartoonists were murdered for engaging in their craft, but also radicalizing because of the reaction of, of, of many genuine friends. And that was one of the experiences that made me much more worried about and critical of the failure of the left to take on authoritarian movements in a consistent way. And I have a feeling that this event is going to be radicalizing in a similar way for, for a lot more people uh, because the scale is different. And so I don't know that we'll get sort of a, you know, a mass turning point or something like that, but I do think a lot of smart, humane people who were attracted to the ideas of, of, of the liberal left for understandable reasons, because they thought that it's the most, you know, supposedly kind of politics, you know, the most consistent way to fight for a just society, fight against genuine injustices in the world. I think a lot of people are having their eyes opened about uh, who some of their allies truly are. Yasha, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Brennan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.